If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be collaboratively detailed, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we get players hooked on the game world right away, and what quick details help culture pop at the table, and how awesome is the Quantum Kickflip podcast? It's super awesome, but we'll get to that. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. Our topic today is a pretty universal topic. It's something that I think... We're all constantly trying to improve upon. Session zeros? Yeah. Yeah. And getting people into it with that session zero. This is one of those things that I always go like, nah, I know my players well enough. We've been playing for a long time. I can probably skip it. And I pay for it literally every time. Yeah. I find when your session zero doesn't get things off to that right start, then you're sitting there, you know, connections between the characters can feel forced. The players might not be invested in the way that, you know, those great games you've felt before, but things just aren't coming together right. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, what I struggle with the most is getting my players invested in the world. Investment and immersion are a thing that has to be done more naturally than I typically do, because like most DMs, I feel like I come up with this world and then I go, whoa, guys, like, do you love this? And they go, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. That's uh, I didn't catch all, uh, most of what you just said, but I, I get the vibe that you're going for. So that's yeah, that's kind of cool. Sure. Let's try it. But you don't understand the depth and the nuance that I've come up with. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that we can do to try to avoid some of these pitfalls. But I wouldn't say that we're experts in this space. Someday, perchance. But why not get an expert? Yeah. So our guest today is David Ray, a wildly talented performer who regularly creates all kinds of entertainment. Who's previously been a part of Yeg D&D, a high fantasy improv show based on Dungeons and Dragons. He's a co-creator of the Prairie Improv Federation, a WWE-inspired improv performer showdown. He's done all kinds of additional shows, contributing in a pretty big way to Edmonton's local comedy world. Also, being a part of the Debutantes, a sketch comedy troupe based in that same city. And they have started up a tabletop role-playing actual play podcast called Quantum Kickflip, where they play a game called Slug Blaster. He's also deeply experienced at running games in his personal life, all enhanced by his experience in the worlds of writing and performing in great stories with great characters. So for today, he's bringing that wonderful collection of experiences to us. We're going to talk very quickly about designing cultures with character input and also just generally have a really extensive and interesting conversation about how to build a bigger, broader world that doesn't lose players, but instead gets them invested in everything that you've collectively created. So this is all about getting players on the same page by building the world with them. And with that, welcome, David. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a real pleasure. I mean, we've met before many moons ago, but it's it's yeah. great to uh, to have you back and to be able to talk about 
all the things that you are <laughs> incredibly good at. You know, you've got a really wide berth of skills and and variances. So we're gonna we're gonna mine those. We're gonna juice them. Whatever. Just extract all of that. <laughs> Leave We're gonna me a husk. Mine them. Yes. <laughs> Just leave me a husk of a person. Yeah. You know? That's fine. That's, That's fine. I mean, and it works. <laughs> yeah, precisely. But the last time we chatted, you did mm-hmm. have a lot of pretty wild creative ideas going on. And I'm assuming that's still the case. So what has been swirling around in your mind today? What creative project is at the forefront? I, I suppose there's two currently. One is Quantum Kickflip, which we'll, I, I will talk a little bit uh, later. But also, actually, in the next week or so, we are going to be uh, shooting a, a movie. The debutantes, the the people behind Quantum Kickflip. Uh, we're working on a Christmas movie. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> like an anti-Christmas movie, sort of, with like horror elements. It's going to be called uh, <laughs> The Spirit of Christmas. It's uh, So you can use that yeah. and go with it, yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun. with you. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So it's like the end of October. So we're doing all the interior shots and doing all that kind of stuff. And and it's going to be fun. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Right on. That sounds awesome. You'll have to let us know how that turns out. I I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about, you know, with that because it's not, and I'm just a, I'm just a cog in the wheel. You know what I mean? I'm just a... I helped write it, you know, and I'm appearing uh, in it, but I don't make any decisions. So <laughs> all of the work that the debutants do is just so it sits in this bizarre crossroads of thoughtful, zany, and I mean, just flat out hilarious. Like there's you guys have this vibe to you. So I cannot wait to see what a Christmas movie <laughs> or Christmas movie. Looks yeah, like. I, yeah, it's weird to describe. Describe without like uh, giving away too much of it, but yeah, it, it. I I do like to think that the debutants have a lot of heart in their work. That uh, yes, we try to be funny, but also we we try to do the thing where it's like, yeah, we have an opportunity to say something, to speak into you know what life is like, and we try to honor that while still you know making uh, as many dick jokes as you can. You know what I mean? You gotta you gotta find the balance. In life, <laughs> you can't lose the core of what you do. <laughs> we are in comedy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't wait to to dive in more. We're going to talk more about your podcast and just some of the work that you had going on. But first, like we said, we're going to strip mine all of those brilliant ideas, and we're going to do that uh, all focused around culture creation and your particular method of kicking off an RPG. So let's do that in our strategy stateroom. This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. Okay, so when we first talked to David about his method and kind of some of the things that we do as well, we found that it boiled down to what you do in your session zero to start things off. And we came up with three phases that this all kind of falls into. You can run through in your session zero and come out with a great place to start your game. So the first phase is foundation. The second is collaborative world building. And the third is character creation. So let's start at the foundation phase. I think this this one and like fill us in on on 
how you typically go about doing this as well. But I know that, you know, having recently run through uh, a brand new session zero, it's kind of funny when you do like two year long, three year long campaigns, you don't get an opportunity to do another session zero for sometimes years at a time. So like having done this recently myself, I'm really excited to talk about this topic in particular because <laughs> it's fairly fresh, but with foundation. Yeah. Like I know that this is pretty common practice is just going through that whole list of what are the really important ground rules to lay down. Yeah. Do you have anything that uh, you kind of cover in your your kind of foundation phase? Uh, yeah, I, I think when it comes to starting off and you're, you're setting the tone of the campaign, it's it's important to get on board with what the players want. It, it's a collaborative game. It's not just the Dungeon Masters game. So what I'll often do at the start of a new one, I have my new group of players or it's, you know, the same old players coming together to do a new game. I come with a few pitches for them. I, I come with, you know, like things that I think would be interesting to do. And I'll throw, you know, kind of give a, a summarized version of it. Maybe I'll say, so here are some ideas I have. I was thinking maybe we could do one that's like a Pride and Prejudice style game where, you know, it's about high society and different, uh, both that high end of society and how that all works. Or maybe, yeah, do you want to do a pirate game with airships and all that kind of stuff? Or do you want to be part of a pioneer town in the Shadowfell. And I'll, I'll give them their, their, the different options I have. I'll even like take in people's ideas if they happen to have one. And then we kind of put it to a vote. In some places when I have like a lot of players, like say if I have like eight to 10 and I'm going to run two separate campaigns, it will also help me filter out which players I'm going to put into which campaigns. And uh, yeah, I, I put it to a vote because I, I have enough ideas that, you know, if I can get behind any one of these, then great. That You want your players to be on board with whatever the campaign is. So you're one of those hard-working DMs that's got like three games on the go. So I, I just two. <laughs> oh. Fortunately for me, they're both in the same world, so it's a lot easier <laughs> to kind of like maintain like, oh, th this is what this world is like. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit got easier. It. Yeah, that makes a huge yeah. difference. I'm assuming when you're bringing that to the table too, though, you're, you're bringing it to the group so that they can tweak those original ideas with their input yeah well and, and especially as uh, once it's you know chosen then we can kind of talk a little bit about it and you'll see that in like as we go through these phases how that may look like but at the start it's just like here is the essential idea you know are we playing a hoity-toity pride and prejudice or are we like doing some sort of like john wick revenge uh plot you know whatever the thing is that's let's get on board with that vibe yeah. first or a christmas horror even perhaps <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you could you could totally do that. Make Santa like some you know giant monster. That yeah. I mean, Futurama did this famously. Yeah, that's so. true. I'm thinking a challenge rating of 21, and you got to work your way through every one of his reindeer before you can finally face him. And of course, he can uh, summon any kind <laughs> of uh, item to his hand, right? Because he, he has elves making them, right? So, so many toys. <laughs> <laughs> the entire Dungeon Master's yeah. guide full of items. I like it. Well, I think if you're listening to this and for the purposes of a session zero, it should probably be mentioned that there's also, you know, kind of all of the 
the what I like to start with first anyways is more or less just the the table rule. So how does leveling up work? Does everyone want to do XP or do they want to do, you know, milestone leveling? That's sometimes a, a DM preference. Sometimes players don't really care. Sometimes they have really strong feelings about it. I know that with behavior and expectations, this was something that our dad, since he, he does a lot of classroom teaching, one mm-hmm. of the things that I took away from a lot of his classes is he would always start with something like this. He he would do a session zero in class in that he would get everyone in class to kind of come to some term of, an, of agreement in the very beginning to say, hey, how late is okay? If you're going to be late to class, are, if you're going to miss class, if you're going to, and that's what we do with these session zeros as well, is we get everyone on board for, you know, behavior and expectations, how to handle those absences, or even like ethics and topics to avoid for the comfort of everyone at the table. Yeah, yeah. Expectations are, I think, fundamental. I think that's why it's good to put up at front, up front, because if people are thinking that a game is going to go a certain way and it goes this way, that's when they start, you know, not having a good time. You know, if they are wanting like a, you know, a very crunchy kind of game with, you know, about precise rules and precise numbers and like following the rules hardcore, that's important to know at the beginning, right? Versus if you have a group that just like, hey, it's okay if we just kind of like, <laughs> you know, focus on the role playing or whatever the thing is. And of course, that's where even the that whole lines and veils the idea of like what topics are okay to talk about with uh, or explore in the campaign. If, if you find out that, hey, maybe we shouldn't deal with this topic because this would upset uh, upset a person that's not going to be fun when you bring it up and you didn't have that discussion beforehand you know you got to make sure people are on board uh, so that you can have everybody can have fun Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think with you know like you said lines and bales what's so beautiful about this game is that you can just have ridiculous balls to the wall, weird ass fun, or you can actually play stuff that explores some some challenging topics, gives you some catharsis. But like you said, everyone has to know that they're all playing the same game at the outset, <laughs> because that's a harsh reality that they're about to face in a couple of weeks. Yeah, if, if uh, people are coming into it and they're like, oh, this is going to be like Adventure Time, and then it's just Game of Thrones, <laughs> it might be... It might be heartbreaking <laughs> to somebody and just like a little bit too bleak, you know, because this is ultimately escapist uh, fantasy uh, for some. And it may be uh, the grim, dark version of a game is not going to be what they want. Some people want Ted Lasso. Some people want, want Squid Game. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and this gives the, everyone the opportunity to either come to that agreement or to simply bow out. And like, you know, going back to the example of, of our dad teaching class, some people would simply say, you know what? 90% of people have this expectations in this classroom. This is not an expectation I feel comfortable trying to fulfill. I'm going to bow out and I'm going to stop uh, right mm-hmm. now. And that's mm-hmm. totally valid and that's totally fair. But that's where every player gets to, to kind of get on board. And they also tend to police themselves. I find that really valuable too, is that when everyone at the table, not just the DM has to try to bring the band hammer down to say, hey, you know what? You've missed three or four games in a row. We kind of agreed that one or two at the most was acceptable. Now all of a sudden the players are policing each other instead of the DM always having to be the bad guy and have those tough yeah, conversations. Because yeah, if the DM is 
deciding like, oh, they've missed so many. And it's it would seem appropriate, even if the rest of the party kind of agrees, if it hadn't been discussed before, it does feel like the dungeon master is just arbitrarily <laughs> making up some sort of expectation that was not actually established. So yeah, it is important to go over, you know, what is acceptable for absences, what is okay, what are topics that are not okay to talk about or a, a broach, and even the kind of house rules you may have I that you know, you're going to follow, you know, you're going to add these things or you're not going to have access to these races or classes or whatever. It's good to have all that in that initial discussion. Uh, and this is why session zero is so important. And what I love is that the internet is full of lists of a lot of these topics about what you should probably cover in a session zero. Like there's, there's dozens out there. They're all tremendous. The one bit that I know that we had discussed and we had kind of chatted about and all of us, I think we're really on board for that. I don't see mentioned a lot is talking about three major pieces that I think are, is really kind of core to that foundation. One is the mm-hmm. theme. One is the influences. And then one is kind of that era and that vibe that you touched on with, you know, talking about, oh yeah, we're going to do pride and prejudice. So with theme, what kind of themes are you you finding the most fun to play with in D&D right now? I I think a lot of it ties back to like morality and, you know, what is good and evil. Uh, It's very easy to go into the Star Wars, you know, the Emperor's clearly evil and, you know, Yoda's clearly good and, and that's all fine, but sometimes it's it's muddied by things and you know where does redemption lie in that and so those are like that's the kind of themes i like to explore in it i also the other kind of thing that i i like to have is a mystery some sort of grand mystery i i'm a fan of lost including season six which i know is super (laughs) unpopular but i i do like the idea of a grand mystery and I'll have that throughout uh, my campaign. But those are the broad kind of themes that I, you know, if a player's coming to my table, you can kind of expect those kind of things in, in my campaign. Do you put any of that out there when you start? Like, do you give that expectation? I, I suppose, like, maybe the, I'll talk about, like, the mystery thing. Like, there's not, there's going to be some things that are going to be slowly revealed but I don't necessarily talk about this is the the ideas that we're going to explore. I just like let them happen and let them react to it. I, I think you can sometimes if especially if you're going to go with a certain kind of theme, like if you're setting out one like uh, survival, for instance, that affects your gameplay to a very distinct amount where it's just like in a survival thing, suddenly keeping track of encumbrance might make a lot of difference. Maybe you're going to have to keep track of rations. For instance, and so in my campaign, the the things that we're doing, I am actually running a Pride and Prejudice game (laughs) right now. I don't care about rations or money even. I don't even keep track of money. You probably could afford it. (laughs) I don't want to bother with all of that. So let's just focus on the story and your decisions and stuff like that. 100%. What I found recently with doing this session zero with my players is that we did kind of spitball some themes early on. And like you said, it completely affects how you want the game to play. You choose later on to throw a dragon into the game. But is this dragon, is it going to be more about survival? Is it going to be a force of nature? Or if you didn't come up with that theme, is it going to be more about greed? And so now the dragon has a very different tone and how you use it in your game is is totally different. 
different. So like a, a good example that I was just thinking of before we hopped in here is when you are able to throw out themes that don't seem to have a ton of through lines, maybe, you know, like one example mm -hmm. is if you take that survival theme, add corporate greed, and then motherhood as a theme, you've got alien, like those were all core <laughs> themes of alien, but you've got a very interesting kind of pitch for a game when you smash all those themes yeah. together. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I really like that. That's good. <laughs> and what I found with the players is at least getting them on board meant that they were all completely stoked for the themes that we chose. When they feel like they're a part of the process, when they feel like they actually helped define the game that they're going to play. Yeah, because yeah, it will also affect how they make their characters. Hopefully they'll kind of align what they make according to those ideas, right? Which is good when you're putting out themes or whatever and discussing that with your players. Sometimes, you know, you you may want to just choose a theme and you're going to present it. But like if, you, if you're pretty open-ended to what kind of campaign, because I know some people are just like, I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> which I can completely understand too. Talk with your players, which I think you'll see as a theme going throughout the rest of this episode, <laughs> is if you don't know, ask your players. They're, they will help yeah. you. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, even taking it a step further and saying whatever thought or idea that you have, sometimes it's better to let it go and let the players come up with it. Because I know that I've done this mm -hmm. in the past. I made a lot of mistakes in as a DM. You know, I've come up with a whole theme and a story in a world. And I've come to the table and said, you guys, I've got it. This is so good. You're going to love it. Turns out they're not going to love it because they <laughs> yeah. didn't help build it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. The next one is influences. And like tip in this last bout of a session zero, I just had the, the players come up with one to three major influences. And like we just kind of discussed, you know, if you choose Game of Thrones, that's got a vibe, that's got a tone versus like Lord of the Rings yeah. or Adventure Time. And those are We're, all set in the same kind of setting, technically, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, even if you compare other like actual play uh, ones where Dimension 20 is kind of like a critical role, but they play fundamentally different too. Like, and, and they're, they're both valid ways of playing, but what do your players want? And, you know, I play with comedians and Im improvisers. So no matter how we can have like moments of seriousness, but generally you are going to have <laughs> a lot of comedy regardless. And I just accept that. And that's yeah. fine. Uh, <laughs> and but because I'm willing to go with it and play with it because there used to be a time in my life where I'm like well it's got to be somehow realistic we're doing kind of a Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings and you are going to be supremely disappointed if you try to make force a whole group of adults do the same thing that you want you know you gotta kind of find compromise in you know yeah yeah absolutely and and i think what i really love about the influences piece is that it goes beyond just this setting you know if i were to say game of thrones sure there's there's almost some different influences that you can even pick out of there is it the political intrigue is it the massive scale battles is it being a powerful mm -hmm. badass and being able to ride a dragon like <laughs> whatever whatever that influence is you get a lot from just 
kind of throwing things together. If you were to take, say, those themes of survival, corporate greed, and motherhood that made up Alien, and then throw in an influence like the movie Speed, now all of a sudden, it's totally different, <laughs> right? Like, you're yeah. like, okay, so it's got to <laughs> yeah. be frenetic, yeah. and it's got to it's got to be alive and you got to feel pressure all the time. Okay. That's that took on a totally different tone. Yeah. Like uh, for instance, if you took uh, like you could do sort of survival, uh, corporate greed and motherhood, put it through the lens of fury road. That would also technically work, but that's a vitally different game, <laughs> you know? But all of these really help to try to establish. And then, of course, you've got that era piece. And I think when we're talking about fantasy games, you have to use era really loosely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's like, I, yes. I want Westerns with dinosaurs and like all kinds of weird yes. shit. But, you know, like you said, you've got a Pride and Prejudice game. Like that puts me, as soon as you say that, I know what era, I know what time it is. You kind of have a, a visual of like what the clothes might be like, what the music might be like. And yeah, you can tweak all of those things and there could be, you know, maybe uh, gnomish airships also present in this world. However, it's broadly informed by this major set piece or the, the major era kind of thing. And you can go from there and tweak everything. Yeah. Like even the idea of like what your classes look like. Pride and Prejudice Fighter looks much different than say a medieval crusader type uh, campaign, you know, but they all can work. It's, but an era kind of gives you that starting point. Absolutely. And then even to, to build on that a little bit further, even if you say, you know, you've got your influence of Pride and Prejudice, that's your influence, but we're going to yeah. do modern and there's going to be automatic weapons. Yeah. And like, okay, I've got the influence of Pride and Prejudice in that era, but now I've got, you know, we're doing it modern era. So, you know, all of those different pieces kind of come together to make and flesh out that whole that whole thing to get the players on board as well as the DM. Yeah, it, it's just like the same way if you can take your influences to be like William Shakespeare, but the era is modern. And then suddenly you have Leonardo DiCaprio with a gun that's labeled as a longsword, but that can still work. It still had the vibe of, you know, what this kind of Shakespearean story was in a different context. And yeah, if everybody's playing that way, then it, you can you can kind of like unify the group. And by having that discussion, it helps guard against players playing two different games. Yeah, that's a huge benefit of this kind of approach because it's so hard to rein that back in once those two players start moving opposite directions. <laughs> mm -hmm. As soon as you have two players at the table, one who has made Princess Sparkle and one who has made a basic Grim Reaper character that is nigh invincible <laughs> and extremely gritty all the time, like like you said, George, you can't rein that back in. That can The genie cannot be put back into the bottle once that happens. Yeah, well, and I, I think this is a, a good point to put out to your players before coming to session zero. You know, feel free to have some ideas for characters, but uh, hold on just a second. <laughs> you know, wait till we're there. Let's talk together because maybe the era and the influences and, and the, the themes don't really match up with your character, but maybe it'll inspire you to do something else and you'd get really excited about that. So that I, I try to tell my players, I mean, players will often have their set ideas and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to play Neo no matter what. I don't care. <laughs> and all right. Well, you know that there's no internet in uh, the Crusades, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, they didn't wear trench coats. No one else is wearing a trench coat. <laughs> 
they they don't have the ability to have like seams like they do you know like you you're you're far way away (laughs) but what i still love about that is that through that lens now because we've done that foundational bit i can now imagine what you know very similar leo dicaprio modern shakespeare i can put those pieces together and start to tweak and we end up with something that's a lot more interesting i think to everyone because not only are the players surprised but the dm is as well and i found that i was a lot more on board the ideas were just coming like crazy for this newest campaign because I did this foundational piece. And I think the part that that made me so, so happy was when one of my players said, as, as a result of doing some of this world building and some of this foundational stuff said, is this going to be a movie anytime soon? Like they were completely <laughs> invested in the idea that they yeah. had come up with. It gets them really excited. Yeah. Sure. On that note, we should move on to phase two which is collaborative world building and i know that you have a lot of of interesting ideas when it comes to how to build a world yeah i i one of my weaknesses as a dungeon master has been world buildings coming up with cultures because if if i don't sit down and do it i'm just going like well i guess it's lord of the rings orcs are like this elves are like this dwarves are like this and it's and that's fine but it also doesn't feel like it's your world fully and and not that you have to rewrite everything and sit down and come up with with everything in a world that's a lot because you are also one person with a limited amount of time so in the same way i i I came up with this kind of a shortcut method of coming up with the culture. And I incorporate it uh, into my own session zero so that the players can, you know, cooperate and collaborate with this. And uh, the, the, the thing that I like about this is that because they are making the the culture, they are invested and they're more likely to to choose one of these things. So how I start with it is, you know, I'll come up with a broad map, maybe like what would be maybe your standard place, your like what everybody is imagining a medieval land to look like, whatever. And, you know, two or three biomes that are nearby. And then for each one of those biomes, uh, I go ahead and make a culture with the players uh, as uh, that we're going to kind of go through on this. I I start with like choosing one of the biomes. Um, For instance, maybe it's like this jungle swamp like area. And I'll say that, you know, the most dominant races here are like orcs and goblins and and stuff like that, just to kind of like, okay, this is where we're beginning. And I I ask three main questions. And after every one of these main questions, I kind of like fill in details. I, 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 I ask for my players to help fill this out. So I know if I'm going with this jungle swamp area with orcs and goblins, I'll I'll begin with take like the orcs. What is kind of unique about them? What do people outside of the culture know about these orcs? And I encourage them to not just do what stereotypical orcs that we all know like try to not think of lord of the rings try to make something special about them they're libraries yeah maybe they're they're librarians they they actually have a lot of books and uh, so then the question would be like okay so do they have libraries what do those look like 
is it still built up? Like, do they have buildings or are they more like uh, traditional orcs in that maybe they don't have a lot of infrastructure, but they maybe like bury all their books? What does it look like? And you keep asking questions uh, and try to fill out that detail and like, oh, yeah, they, 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 they you know, different orc scholars or leaders write these books and then they hide them away and you know certain areas of the forest are protected what do orcish books look like what 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 are what are in them what's so important why are they writing them down and you just keep asking questions and you kind of fill that out that that initial space so that's where i begin take the kind of the dominant race and ask you know what what is known about them and something that is not stereotypical the next one i'll go into is i'll ask about you know a specific aspect of uh the common experience for all sentient kind you know maybe it's something about birth rituals maybe it's about funeral rites about marriage schooling uh becoming an adult holidays whatever it is something that's kind of common across that and and i ask how i uh, take one of them and like how is it different for this group so maybe i'll ask okay for these orcs in the in the forest what does schooling look like for them i try to pitch it away from what we just talked about so i guess if it's books maybe i wouldn't ask about schooling but maybe i'll ask about what does birth look like for the like what would be a, a like an interesting little thing from their culture about birth and try to be creative like what would be a good idea for like don't think of the books don't think of orcs what would be an interesting idea about birth that would be unique and special no child is raised with a family they all get swapped they, they all like they don't actually stay with you they like so would they you know spend any time with the the main family or do they like are they immediately sent off you get put in the pile and you take a new one out <laughs> Maybe. Oh, it's like a lottery yeah. system. Uh, kind of like it maybe something determined uh, by, you know, the, the orcish gods that you're all a community. So, you know, you have to raise them together. So, okay, you have these orcs that are raised by each other. And it also might help, like to me, that also uh, tweaks, like if there's like, say some problematic parents, you might weed them out, right? Like that would be a thing that might happen. <laughs> Will you destroy those familial bonds that end up causing problems and saying, no, I'm I'm loyal to my family. No, you're loyal to everyone because you have no idea who your parents are and you don't know who your kid is. So, <laughs> oh, man, it, the idea that it's a secret. Is it always a secret? Maybe here's one of the things I and, and this kind of relates to how you do this is try to start linking stuff, have that initial conversation. So maybe what some of the book caches are include the true Ooh, genealogy of everybody. There you go. Because one of the important things, especially if you come of age in a place like this where you don't know your parentage, it will be kind of important to know for genetic purposes. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, actually, this is my half sister. I better not, you know, like whatever. Iceland solved that with an app. So, <laughs> yeah, very important. Yeah, I, you know, apps could be uh, different in orc culture. Maybe they have like little rocks that are, that are imbued. <laughs> Anyways, I think there could be one figure though that's kind of like the religious figure that knows all the genealogies too. That's the yeah. only one that knows. Yeah, and of course they would be the ones that would be probably one of the ones right in the books, and they keep track of it, kind of 
yeah, keeping track of genealogies is an important part of their thing. Are they the leader? Are they, is there other ones? What kind, what kind of structure is there? This is what I'm talking about. As you go through, as you add each of these steps that we're going through, uh, you keep asking questions and trying to like, how do all these things intersect? You know, perhaps a part of it is asking about like, well, what in the history of this led to such a thing of mixing up the families? Maybe it was just like there were wars between different clans of orcs and like you know what it might bring more peace if we don't know and like after a, a particularly bad war brought them together and it's like yeah yeah I, like we like that we like that you, you can fill that in so that so that's the second one kind of ask about a specific thing about a common experience and and explore that third one is ask about what would be like either a standard rule or a faux pas in the, in the culture like uh, and once again try to make it so that it's not one of the things that have already been established. Try to like encourage your players. Okay, really throw it out there. That's away from all the things that we discussed so far. So like what would be a faux pas maybe in, in this orcish culture? How about uh, wearing pants all the way down to your ankles? You have to you have to wear pants all the way down to your <laughs> it's ankles. It's oh, all the time, baby. You ha- Yeah. <laughs> These people, look, if I can't see your ankles, I can't trust you. <laughs> Now, this actually peaks my brain of like maybe one of the things that was in that previous war, maybe they had the head of the clan had like a big old knife <laughs> holstered in there by their ankle. And that's how they like killed one of the others. And it was a big thing to show that you can trust. You don't show you, you show your ankles and your feet and everything like that. Maybe they don't wear shoes at all. Like that's the whole thing. It goes that far. So from that, if they're not allowed to wear shoes, what are other things that might come from that? Like, how would they deal with you know, going through thorny patches? What was their kind of solution to that? Because normally, if you had shoes, if you had long pants, it wouldn't be an issue. But how does a culture deal with it? And you keep asking questions, you keep asking the questions, you tie back into the other things, keep those things in mind as you go. And after a while, when you fill out all of those things, you have this really complex, unique kind of culture. And the players are going to remember it because they help design it. And even if there's a player that doesn't say anything, at least they heard the discussion and it's painting stuff in their in their minds as well so yeah it's between those things that you would come up with the culture and then you move over to the other biome maybe it's a group of islands maybe it's uh the mountain range and you do that two or three times and it's almost like a game in and of itself right like say it's kind of a gamey element and players can really latch onto that and they can see this world they can go from there with it and i really like just the fact that you know it informs if i'm playing in this game it's informing so much about how I'm going to make my character because now I can choose to be from one of those places or choose to have at least encountered one of them. And when you're creating the second and third cultures too, I really like that you can, you know, think about how they interact with the first. Like mm-hmm. it all starts to become its own world very naturally. Absolutely. And I've played with a DM that, you know, handed me reading material to catch myself up on all of their lore and this world that they'd crafted. And that's all well and good. You know, if that's your style, 
I mean, some DMs are in it for the world building, but as we've kind of established, this is a ton of fun. And I'll second that with, you know, my players, again, I, I actually ended up doing each one of these phases as an entire session. We did two to three hours per phase of what we're talking about, and they didn't want to stop. They loved it because <laughs> this is the yeah. fun part. And I get that a lot of DMs find it the fun part too, but why not open that up to your players and let them have a crack at it as well? Yeah, because the thing is, you are still ultimately the DM. You can veto things along the way. If you're like, no, I actually don't like that. I, I think it should go this way. That That's perfectly fine. But at least they were there for the discussion, mm -hmm. right? Like they tried to accept as much of it as you can. Because the other benefit, as I said, like one person coming up with all of those details by themselves might be really hard. But you're going to have, you know, three, four, five brains thinking on this and you'll be pitched stuff that would be you would never expect and it, it it's created three cultures in in my current campaign that like everybody knows everybody understands and we all can picture it because we all did it we all worked on it so and another benefit that i'm just thinking about for me like as jordan if I'm doing it this way, I think a lot more unique and weird ideas are going to come up because I wouldn't yes. put the details we just talked about in a culture I created to bring to the table. Honestly, I think I'd just be too self-conscious to do it, to be like, yeah, they have a thing about ankles. How do you guys feel about that? But if it's like that... <laughs> it sounds weird yeah. coming from one individual and that's yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right? So Jordan's got a thing for ankles. I got it. <laughs> got it. There's a weird foot thing going on. <laughs> gotcha. No, but, and that's the thing. This is where, as you guys kind of said at the top of the episode that I do improv, uh, part of that yes and, like just, uh, like I try not to shoot down any ideas, just to, like immediately like take the thing, what's the interesting nugget about it? Let's keep going with it. And yes and, yes and, yes and, and build on it. And then you'll wind up with it. Like some, uh, you're saying that by doing this method, you'll wind up stuff with stuff that you never would imagine coming up with. Like uh, one of the rules or one of the things that shows a higher status in one of my cultures, they live on the islands, right? And there's a lot of rain that comes through and the storm place. If you are a part of the high society, one way that uh, you try to show that is that you're never wet. Oh, If you're never wet, like you're always, if you're constantly dry, that really shows like, well, you're not like the, the silver miners that have to dive into the water to go get the silver. You're you're of the upper echelon. Or maybe uh, the higher class people like wear special clothing or suits that like are water repellent, you know, like you go from there. And I would have never have thought of any of that on my own. That was all my players. And uh, that's way cooler than anything I could have come up simply by myself. Absolutely. You know? Well, phase three is the character creation piece. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of DMs and I used to do this myself quite a bit of just saying like, okay, everyone, here's the world. I've created the world. Now go build a character for that world. And since then, I've completely done a 180 on myself. I will never go back to that system again. I will always build collaboratively as a group. You know, I, I know that a lot of folks have kind of gotten uh, in tune with this way of building characters together with tools like, you know, Jordan and I tend to use the Fiasco Relationship Builder 
And if you do that to each one of your players by connecting them to just one other person at the table, now all of a sudden they don't have to be a part of the same group or story, something or other, but they all know each other and they all have some personal connection to one another throughout the remainder of the story. Yeah, and that and that's fundamental. You need to have a reason that these people are together. And I really like that idea of you're continuing that tradition from like just the world building. Now you're also doing it to the characters and you, because they built it all, maybe you discover, Hey, maybe there was a a war between uh, these two groups here or whatever, or maybe even an outside group. And, you know, these two nations came together to uh, rebuff and yeah, you could add more details about the world through that even. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. The character creation can continue to flesh out the world. Is there anything else Mm -hmm. that you do, David, when you're in this phase, like creating characters at the table to get things off on the right foot? The main thing is I try to... Thing I try to do when I have my, my characters together, my players together, I, I want you to pitch to me how you are together. Now, hopefully, if you've talked about theme and inspirations and all that kind of stuff, uh, you have at least some sort of pitch. Like maybe it's like, hey, you're a group of bounty hunters uh, together make your characters from that and you know bind them together that way i i try to like let's figure out why the group is together almost before the characters because that can guide your decisions a little bit you know if you're supposed to be a military unit that's different than if you're like at some sort of adventuring academy and you're recruits and going off to do whatever yeah so like i try to find a reason to bond them uh or to that they would be coming out as a group together and then release them to come up with their characters or fill in all, all those details. I think I would even throw more into the into the hat with giving the players or having them come up with kind of that central, like picking one of the themes and or one or two of the themes and just saying, okay, tell me how your characters are connected to those themes and those values. In this last bout of a session zero, we started with, tell me what that that commonality is, because we had kind of all discussed as a group that we were going to do some kind of like gangs in New York style game with the core theme of they are in a gang. And then I just Mm -hmm. simply turned it and I said, "What's, what's a core value of your gang? And they said, equality and equitability within the game. Okay, interesting. So there's no Mm -hmm. hierarchy. And with that, we immediately used another topic that we've we've talked about a lot in the past. We have a whole episode on four corner opposition. And so with four corner opposition, Mm. you know, it's probably pretty counter and I'm sure I'm going to make some DM skin crawl with this. But I simply said, make your villain (laughs) because so so many times in the past i've had you know i've built what i thought was just the best villain in the world Mm. and then the players said yeah we're not really interested in that person we're gonna go over here and now all of my plans have gone to shit but what's really cool about four corner opposition is you start with one corner of being the players and in the second corner you you allow them to create their own villain by simply resisting that core trait so they are they're running counter to that core that core value and then you still as a dm have two more corners to flesh out some more villains that will still surprise your players but now at least the adventure is kicked off with all of them saying we all hate that guy because we came up with them and we we know that we're supposed to we don't have to be 
be sold on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you're having the equity kind of thing as the the core traits, and like the villain is like, well, maybe it's a a hard established system that we you know category mains everything to the the villain yeah and then you have the the two offshoots because if i can remember correctly because i remember this episode i i do listen to the podcast <laughs> you would have like two traits of the of the heroes and then you know the, the one in the opposite corner would be you know what are the opposite of those two things so you're saying uh, once you have those two opposite traits try to fill in what that villain that main villain or like the group that's around that villain what does that look like and the two corners are like they share a trait with the villain and the heroes and all that kind of stuff i mean right? it's, a, it's a very common storytelling tool but i don't think it's really made the jump into tabletop role-playing yeah. and to me it was a it was a total game changer of being able to flesh out an entire campaign with three separate villains some that the players could see kinship with to to make that villain mm -hmm. more related and more believable you know i respect the hell out of them for this but also they gotta die because of this yeah. and being able to do that and then create their ultimate villain which is completely counter to everything that they stand for that's you know that's how to sell and my campaign nearly wrote itself yeah it's nice to have more than just the one group that you're opposed to that binary of like we're on the good guy side and they're on the bad guy side it, it's not there's not a lot of life in that uh but like even adding a third or or the fourth group that can uh influence these events that that i think definitely enriches things and adds a lot of color to it there might be a scenario where you're making an uneasy alliance to do this thing and it adds a lot of depth to the world without being too too much because that's i for me the big problem uh coming up with the world is like well it's not like there's just like the bad guys and the good guys <laughs> but am i going to make every single nation in the world am i going to come up with every single no 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 like don't worry just make it simple is uh been a big helpful piece of advice in general you don't have to get too caught up you don't have to plan to the end you can just kind of plan in the immediate and if you have like these four groups how can you use the four groups i i, I think that's really good yeah talk about the most paralyzing thought as a new dm is just like how far down do i go do i have to do i have mm -hmm. to outline every npc in this world and their desires and dreams and wants and fears i can't do this yeah absolutely that's actually was a big thing for me when i was you know for most of my dm career i suppose is like i would have to have everything figured out every kind of like major thing in each village and it became so daunting and i couldn't do it anyways <laughs> so it was just like and i i would just feel like a bad dungeon master because i couldn't figure it all out but if it's just hey they come to the town here you, let's figure out what would be a good scenario for this space. Maybe you didn't think about this town before walking into it, but Dungeons and Dragons I found over the years doesn't move as fast as you think it does. <laughs> so it's like, you know, even by throwing a quick encounter with some raiders, you can slow things down. It's like, okay, they're going to go into this next village. What does it look like? What's the conflict? How can I use these three different groups? Can I highlight a thing in there? Yeah, it's it's much easier to have just go 
step by step. Absolutely. And I think you touched on something that I, I almost feel like is a is an excellent end to this whole series of, of phases, which is, you know, being a DM is tough enough. There's no reason to put more on yourself of having to try to craft an entire world on your own. Then you got session prep. Then you got all of the, like, if you're going the extra mile, then you're tying in themes and other characters' backstories. And like, there's more than enough to do. Share the load with the rest of the players at the table because they got some creative yeah. shit that is just boiling up and it's it's going to come out. You might as well harness it, leverage it, use it and let them buy in. Yeah, you can use it going forward. You know, it doesn't have to just be at the start of the campaign. You know, one of the things I found was a great boon was this idea of, you know, maybe you're going into a, a pub uh, and it's, you don't know, you're just kind of like throwing it out there like, oh, there's this group, this group, you know, you see these dwarves over here, this gnome bard over there and the human bartender. And the thing is, you may have only planned for like the gnomish bard to be of any significance. That's their contact or whatever. And you're just waiting for their set to finish up. But then they go talk to that table of dwarves and you're like, uh, I didn't, I don't really have names for them. And so the players will go over maybe thinking that the dwarves have something important to say. And, you know, you ask, they, they ask, oh, so what, what are your names? Uh, 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 Rick, Gimlo. Rick, Gimlo, and Rick, too. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, so these people are not important. I'm going to stop investing in them. What I'll sometimes do, and especially in these scenarios where they walk in, I won't do it for every single NPC in a place, but, you know, for a couple of them, maybe I'll get them to paint what those dwarves look like. Tell me what they kind of look like. Maybe give me three names. Now, secretly, you know, when you use one of those dwarves later, because you have a great idea of like, oh, one of them saw what happened in the bar later on. You, guess what? You can bring up that dwarf to be important. And because they named them, it's just like, oh, they don't know who's important and who's not. Just like in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> when you walk up, you don't know how important any given person is. And by letting your players name folks or describing them, it gives the world a little bit more of its own vibrancy to a certain degree. It's own like thing, because there's a lot of characters. There's even major characters I didn't even name because I was like, they're going to encounter them in this you know, low stakes place and they're going to turn out to be something major later. So I didn't name them and they they wound up naming them and then they showed up later and they're surprised. Now, of course, if you've decided your major villain is uh, Gormalax and, uh, you know, Gormalax is going to be in town, we well, go ahead and name him. Like, you don't have to do that for everybody, but there's certain scenarios where it's okay. Let them, let them be a part of the process and it will add mystery to this world of like, was the bartender important? Was the dwarves important in the bar? You know, that's, it adds a, a lot more vibrancy. Yeah, and Absolutely. reduces the number of ricks in the world. <laughs> Just too many Ricks. Yeah, there's too, way too many Ricks. My name list is three long. Uh, so, <laughs> absolutely. Much. Let's move on to our next segment and talk a little bit more about you and what you got going on. This is the Hero Stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. Well, David. Travis and I know, and I mean, the listeners know a little bit that we listed at the top, but you've done a lot 
of creative projects and you continue to bring new performances into the world. I only wish I could be in Edmonton for more of them, but what started you down this wild creative path that you're on? I, I like performing. I enjoy doing comedy. And for the longest time, I would write sketches for like, say, youth groups and summer camps that I worked at and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, I, I want to continue to do that. And when I moved to Edmonton, you know, it's hard to just do uh, sketch comedy when you know zero people. Uh, So you're missing a vital component, which is others. So I decided like, well, I want to, I liked the idea of stand-up comedy. I wanted to give that a shot. I was kind of inspired by Pete Holmes. He's a stand-up comedian and his advice is with stand-up, just know that you're going to suck for two years. And then over those two years, you're going to figure out your voice. And that was true. I I just allowed my, cause I always had that like idea of like, I don't want to suck ever, but if I know that that's a part of the process, then it, it allowed myself to like you know when those hard nights came and nobody laughed (laughs) (laughs) as I'm trying to figure out stand-up comedy that it it allowed me to push through and and eventually I just you know connected in with the rest of the the comedy community I uh one comedian in particular uh Liam Creswick uh he was like well hey Dave you know a lot about Dungeons and Dragons Uh, you know you should try out for this improv group and it, it, and I had never done improv before, but I knew D&D and I'm gangly and I can do weird tricks with my body. <laughs> so I was able to somehow squeak through on the audition and I, I started doing that. And Liam was then like, I want to do sketch comedy. And he gathered some people together. He asked me to join because he uh, knew I did that. And I embraced all of these different paths because... I, I, I wanted to try to learn from all of these different things to maybe help myself, like become a better writer, become a better comedian, become a better actor or whatever. And, and, and that is true. And of course, one of the things I did not expect is that it actually helped me uh, play D&D better too. <laughs> like uh, I've taken so much from improv and it's helped me be a better DM and kind of relax at the table and go with the flow a little bit and kind of realize that you can kind of take these things, these uh, ideas from other people and use them to your advantage to make a better story. So I I think it came from an idea of like, I just like performing. I like making people laugh. If I can do it in sketch, if I can do it in standup, if I can do it, uh, then great. That's what I want to do. And that led me through this and I happen to have enough skill in all of them to uh, be you know be welcomed in all of those spaces (laughs) so but like you said it probably took a little sucking to get there yeah there was a you know learning improv is not it's not easy like what people think it is there is things you need to learn but you know uh, I I had support and the fact that I could just pull out the idea of what a manticore is in a D&D show (laughs) and people like oh (laughs) Absolutely. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, live action D&D role play. That is that is becoming <laughs> a thing. It's fast becoming, you know, a legitimate, hey, this is how D&D is played. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know you had Lena Anderson on in a previous episode, who's also a part of the debutantes and who also does quantum kickflip with me. And it, it, it's got a, like its own history. Like it, we do what's called Yeg D&D and uh, Yeg is like the airport co- code for Edmonton, but it's this D&D show that we do here. But it started in uh, Winnipeg, as far as I can tell. They, they, the Winnipeg, there's a group of people in Winnipeg that do D&D for their fringe show and it just kind of spread around. And to do it as a theater show, it's not the same as LARPing, uh, which is its own kind of thing. It really is stripping down D&D to its uh, basics of, you know, classes and races and monsters and magic items, just like the taking some of those references and making uh, improvised stories based off of it, but kind of doing away with a lot of the rules and how we resolve it is just like with simple D20 rolls. We don't have like character sheets or anything like that. It's just to, you know, we will hand the dice off to the audience to roll on our behalf. We look at the roll and decide, you know, uh, how well or poorly we did uh, based on like, if there's like, if the numbers are really close, we just barely won or we bit, we barely lost it. If it there's a huge difference then it's like okay this is a significant win or a significant loss and we do, we can't really communicate it but we decide that we we, we kind of like play it out and see what that looks like and that has helped me with Dungeons and Dragons when it's like, what do these roles mean sometimes? Does a low roll mean that it's a abysmal of failure? And what does that look like for any given character? I do have to point out by, I'm going to take it a side thing, uh, your uh, episode, or you talked about at one point, the idea of like rolling ones uh, for characters who are skilled in something. I think that was fundamental. That's a, such an important one of like, <laughs> Just because you rolled a one doesn't mean you look like a like an idiot uh, necessarily. It just means hey, it didn't work out the way you wanted. Yeah, you know, but but all of that came through that show and. I think it's incredibly important to to kind of take that lesson. You know, I think as far as Jordan and I's DMing style, and, and both of us have significantly different styles. That being said, you know, the journey of this podcast and the journey of, of just becoming a better DM, I would say is a lot of just learning to do exactly what you do in, in those kind of scenarios. And I'm sure even on Quantum Kickflip of just distilling it down to what is fun, what story Let's keep it moving. Let's keep having fun because we don't need to arbitrate. I I know that there's 8,000 books out there with different rules, but ultimately this is, this is a group storytelling experience. We're going to, we're going to keep things going and we're going to have fun with it. What I like about that too, is that like, that's how I explain D and D to people that are new to it is how you explained what you do at your show. It's like, essentially, it's just a 20-sided dice and however well you roll is however well you do. And we'll figure it out from there. Yeah, well, and and that's a key thing. And I think 5th edition does a a really good job with that of, you know, ultimately, it is the dungeon master who decides. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's more important than getting caught up on the specific, you know, the minutia of it. Instead, like, what's a better story with this failure? And yeah, I like how fifth edition has handled skills and, you know, that's a little bit more vague 
And so like you can decide like that was a decent role. And I think this is how it would look like. I, the fact that I don't have to always pull out a book <laughs> and I can just like, well, 15 is a decent number. <laughs> you know, like I know, I know that it's a lot easier to, uh, to negotiate and to figure out. Yeah. Well, all that experience kind of led you to one of your newest projects, which is quantum kickflip. Mm-hmm. So can you give us a bit of an overview of that fabulous podcast you're working on? Yeah, it's actually uh, an actual play podcast based on an upcoming tabletop role-playing game called Slug Blaster, it's being developed by somebody in Edmonton. Uh, his name's Mikey Ham, And uh, the game is like lighter rules than D&D, but the premise is teenagers that will go to other dimensions. They have these devices that allow them to go to to other dimensions and they are just trying to become popular. Kind (laughs) of like think of skateboarders in the 90s that would go and like do all these tricks and make videos based on it. And then people like, oh, that's amazing. And they become popular in the same way. Just do that. But in dimensions where, you know, suddenly uh, vampires are real or in a dimension where it's just all underwater. It's that kind of thing with teenagers with special equipment, pulling pranks or doing shenanigans and then trying to become popular on, on social media or whatever. And in the case of Quantum Kickflip, it's uh, set in small town, Alberta, with these kids that, you know, it's set in the 90s. That was a thing that we decided to go with, 90s technology. And also we're, you know, 30-year-olds, so we know 90s references better than trying to pull out, like, 2010s. Yeah, no, it doesn't work. I'm just, we're just going to say that we had the ability to go to other dimensions in the 90s. And then cool, I can make golden eye references. Perfect. (laughs) But yeah, it's them just trying to make it and become popular. I love the idea of the dimension hopping, because that is like creativity turned up to 11. You've got maximum potential with every next session or what have you to basically do exactly what we talked about earlier on in this show about, you know, place and time and theme. And like, you basically would do a a mini session zero to be, we're in a new dimension and vampires are real, but also they're, they're super chill. And, you know, they, they drive around spaceships like what? And that's, that's now the the next session. Yeah. It's a very lighthearted kind of a game. Slug Blaster is like, even to the point where there's technically your character can't die. This is not the, we're not doing a game of Thrones in, uh, in other dimensions. It's more like you can lose your character still, but your character would be, you know, maybe it's just too much for them. And they, and then they quit. Uh, And there's, rules and how that kind of looks like but it's not it's supposed to be an upbeat fun kind of uh story and uh mikey has really designed that game well for that for sure i think that's super cool how you know you change the stakes and it has that that much of an effect like you change the stakes from dying to being cool and that informs so much of how you're gonna play the game and (laughs) and i also just love like when i started changing my dm style a bit to reflect everything we talked about in this episode i think is about the time that i heard about 
Slug Blaster. And I was just thinking, that's what this is. This is just a mishmash of some amazing inspirations to make a totally unique gaming experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of my favorite things about uh, Slug Blaster and and how it's affected how I've done Dungeons and Dragons, um, like the core mechanic uh, there, as opposed to D&D that rolls D20, you add a modifier, you discover it. In this, it's uh, D6 based. And on a one to three, you fail. On a four to five, it's a mixed success. So like you do what you're going to do, but there's a complication or a problem. And a six is an unequivocal success. And you'll notice that five of the numbers out of six have some sort of negative quality (laughs) to it. And it's... What I've learned from playing the game is that negative things can add to the story. It doesn't always have to be the worst things possible. Maybe you you do uh, sort of what you did wanted, but not quite, or it causes this problem over here. Maybe you, you take a hit, or maybe you've caused this thing to explode that you didn't want to explode, or you know, you do it that way that it got, it allowed me to be more creative with failures uh, that I've incorporated over to D&D where I've tried to justify failures in D&D better, where it's, you know, if your stealth check failed and you're proficient at it, I try to make it. So it's like, yeah, it's not that you look like a goof and crash into a table and made a loud noise. Maybe it's just simply you had the unfortunate thing of the person looked over at the precise moment you were going like it doesn't have to be world ending or like so like hard it doesn't have to be the end of it you can use it to expand and add more to it well it's the mechanic of no but yes yeah (laughs) yes and no but no but yeah if you can add to it that's even better like the idea of you know you like here's a classic one if you're doing a climb i like you doing an athletics check to climb a thing and now you could say you you rolled you know, maybe on 11, but really a 15 is what you're looking for to succeed. Maybe on 11, you know what? You you still did climb. You don't have to roll again. Problem is, you know, maybe the monster will be waiting for you up at the top already. You know, like you don't have to like, well, no, I'm waiting for that 15 to show up on that die. <laughs> you know, like you keep things advancing. What's the better story? And I that's a big thing I took from Slug Well, Monster. if I'm a discerning podcast consumer and I have limited time to listen Mm -hmm. to all of the wonderful podcasts out there. Why Mm -hmm. should I I take my precious evening and spend it with all you yahoos (laughs) over at Quantum Kickflip? That's a good question. Uh, That's a thing when we look, I don't know if you notice this, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And that shut uh, the debutantes down from being able to perform. And we were like, well, what can we do to still, you know, perform, try to keep our comedic sensibility sharp? And we were like debating podcasts. But the problem is we're like, look, there's a billion podcasts out there about every topic. And, you know, even doing an actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast, there's a million of those. And because we had, you know, kind of tossed around the idea and we're like, well, that doesn't stand out. But when we got the opportunity to play test this game and and we loved it so much, it was so much fun. Uh, and we realized, hey, no one's really played this game. 
yet. Uh, this, this is a thing that's upcoming. So the thing that makes ours unique is that you get to see this game played specifically. You get to see how the game kind of works. We've also, like, I think it's very charming and funny. And uh, we we have a, a ton of fun uh, throughout all of it. It's a very, it's a lighthearted podcast. Uh, and if you want uh, to see improvisers working at their best uh i i think quantum kickflip uh, is a good uh is a good choice well 100 back that because yes the the show is tremendously fun to listen to it's totally out there it's totally zany and just the fact that you know it is a whole bunch of consummate performers that are are just you know they you guys capture attention and you hold it uh, in a, in an iron grip, and it's just a, a tremendous listen. It's a lot of fun, which to me is the big difference between you guys and uh, many of the million that you mentioned. Is yeah, you guys have experience with all of the elements that make an actual play podcast. So it's <laughs> it's a quality piece of work to start with. Thank you. That that means a lot. We try to be heartwarming and funny at the same time, and also uh, very uh, silly. I make. Look, I'm a big fan of wrestling and the the way Slug Blaster works. You can totally say I'm going to do a, a German suplex off of the you know the top of this balcony, and it, you don't need to have a, a special feat to do that. You can just describe that. So the game is very open to be able to like add your own zest to it. Which, which by the way, you should check out Slug Blaster as well. That's a side thing. I'm not f- really involved with it, but I think you should check that game out. Absolutely. Too. And can you quickly just tell us who you play in Quantum Kickflip? Oh, absolutely. So I play uh, Chester Capone. He is from Philadelphia, and he moves to this small town in Alberta. I have uh, my class. It's called a playbook in that game. It is called The Grit. And the grit playbook is supposed to be just a tough son of a gun. They can take hits and they keep going. So like, I'm totally like one of those ones that I'm not necessarily good at fighting. It's just that I can take a lot of punches to the face kind of a thing (laughs) and I can just keep going. And he's kind of like, like a himbo, you know, he's just a nice, he's a nice guy and he's, he's tough, but you know what? He's a sweet guy. And uh, yeah, he loves Philadelphia. He's kind of dumb, but... And so you have to check him out for the quotes that he gives from his family? Yes, from Graham Capone, which is me just making up uh, bits of wisdom. You know, (laughs) stuff like, if you have to kiss the tax man, don't slip him tongue. (laughs) What does that mean? Who knows? (laughs) But that's the kind of like weird folksy wisdom that he gets from his grandma. That's his like morals uh, compass. (laughs) kind of a thing and he's a little bit dopey but it's it's so much fun to play a dopey guy who can like you still fight real good you know well i think uh your your character's fake gram and our real gram have been talking because i'm pretty sure she gave us the same <laughs> advice well, we'll have all of the links for to you david and also of course to quantum kickflip so we'll have those in the show notes but if, if you need to quickly check them out you've got uh, quantumkickflip.com or you can follow david at a, in a lot of places, but if you need to get a hold of him right now before you check the show notes, <laughs> you just find him on Twitter uh, at the Dave Ray or on TikTok where he's got some D&D content, if I'm not mistaken, at Mr. David Ray. Yeah, I don't have like a ton of videos on there, but there are a few like little pieces of D&D that I like to share on there. 
you know, I've been doing this for, I guess, 26 years now. And <laughs> I don't uh, pretend I'm the best DM, but I've done it enough and failed enough to have some ideas. So, <laughs> well, again, that's uh, at Quantum Kickflip, Twitter, Facebook, all of those places. And then the Dave Ray on Twitter, right on. Mr. David Ray on TikTok. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's it's wonderful to finally get you on the show. And thanks for sharing all of those wonderful nuggets of wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also, big thanks to all of our patrons, the wonderful folks that keep this podcast going. Thanks to Stephen Van C., Alan E., Matthew T., Felix R., Chris F., The Senate, Lucas D., Lila G., The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W., Tyler G., Ty N., Heavy Arms, Eric R., Aldrost, Leprechaun, and Will HP. Thanks also to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. You can find us at any of the social medias at Hook and Chance, and you can join our community of DMs and players who give great advice, just like the stuff that you heard on this episode in our Discord. And David, if you'd like to join us, doesn't have to be good or correct. Just do it in three, two, one. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. And, and play, play great, play great Garms. <laughs> oh, no. Perfect. Wait, Garms is not how you say that. 